Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In early January 1781, former American general and current British general Benedict Arnold burned Richmond, Virginia in his first action as a newly commissioned British officer. At the same time, the British commander of the Southern Department, General Charles Cornwallis, was camped at Winsboro, South Carolina. Five months earlier, he had led his army in a decisive victory at the Battle of Camden, but since then, he had experienced setbacks. His goal was to complete the conquest of the Carolinas. After Camden, he marched up to Charlotte, North Carolina. Step one toward completing his goal was complete. But then, a loyalist column of 1,000 soldiers was defeated at the Battle of Kings Mountain. To make matters worse, Cornwallis lost one of his most trusted officers. Major Patrick Ferguson, who had just been reassigned to the 71st Regiment of Foot, Fraser's Highlanders, was killed in the battle. Cornwallis abandoned his goal of continuing through North Carolina, and he moved his army back down to South Carolina. Then he sent his most trusted cavalry commander, Lieutenant Colonel Bannister Tarleton, to stop a South Carolina militia leader named Francis Marion. That didn't work out either. Tarleton couldn't catch Marion, and Marion would spend the rest of 1781 making the British Army pay for that failure. Then, at about the same time new British General Benedict Arnold began his mission to attack Richmond, a new American commander arrived in the South. Major General Nathaniel Green took over for Major General Horatio Gates. Gates had led the American Southern Army at the disastrous Battle of Camden, and since then, he had been rebuilding the army and implementing a new strategy. The key to the strategy was Brigadier General Daniel Morgan, the newly promoted Brigadier General set to work creating an elite unit of light infantry, men who were battle-hardened veterans who would carry few supplies so they could move fast and strike fast. The unit was called the Flying Army, which was a common label for light infantry units at the time. The core of Morgan's column were 320 Continental soldiers from Maryland and Delaware who had survived and escaped the Battle of Camden, and the whole unit initially moved with the speed that was expected. While the rest of the American Southern Army prepared its winter camp, Morgan's flying army stayed in the field with orders to harass the British Army. General Morgan was known as a hard-charging leader, but he became unexpectedly passive his new light infantry column didn't run into any British troops, whether by design or by accident. And then they struggled to find adequate food to sustain themselves, because the area had been picked clean by tens of thousands of soldiers. So, Morgan's light infantry ended up making its own camp and staying stationary for much longer than anticipated. Nearly a month passed, with very little activity. But the Americans didn't know 
that British General Charles Cornwallis was targeting Morgan's light infantry. Cornwallis gave the same order to Lieutenant Colonel Tarleton that he had given Tarleton a month earlier. The first order had been to hunt down and stop Francis Marion. This order was to find Daniel Morgan and drive him out of South Carolina. From Black Barrel Media, Q Code, and the historic Camden Foundation, this is Mission History. I'm Chris Wimmer, and this is the story of the American Revolution with a focus on the soldiers from both sides who fought at the critical battle of Camden, South Carolina. This is Episode 7, The Race to the Dan. This podcast is brought to you by the historic Camden Foundation. You might be familiar with American revolutionary events like the Boston Tea Party, Bunker Hill, the ride of Paul Revere, and George Washington crossing the Delaware. But what about events in the South? The Battle of Camden was one of the darkest days for the American army, yet it was a crucial turning point for the American cause. Visit Camden, South Carolina at the heart of the Southern Campaign. The historic Camden Foundation interprets revolutionary history in cooperation with the Revolutionary War Visitor Center. Experience hands-on history at their 100-acre colonial town site. See the battlefield and the Longleaf Pine Preserve, where thousands fought and hundreds fell. Go to historiccamden.org to plan your visit and follow them on Facebook and Instagram at Historic Camden Foundation. January 1781, South Carolina. British General Charles Cornwallis knew that American General Daniel Morgan was off to the west with a column of soldiers. The British Southern Army was camped 30 miles west of Camden, and Morgan's flying army was somewhere to the west beyond that, somewhere in the South Carolina backcountry. Lieutenant Colonel Tarleton set out with a force of 750 men, which quickly grew to 1,000 as he pursued Morgan. Tarleton wanted to get around Morgan's column and trap it between his own detachment and the British main army. But the British main army was moving slower than expected, and so Tarleton was out there on his own. And that was exactly what Morgan wanted. Morgan knew he was being chased, and he continued to lure Tarleton farther away from the British main army. Tarleton followed, but he sent a string of messages back to Cornwallis that suggested movements which would allow the British to keep their goal of trapping and destroying Morgan's column. After about two weeks of pursuit, Morgan couldn't run any farther. He knew a battle was coming, and he needed to find a place for it that would give him the best advantage. A captain showed Morgan an area that was known as Cowpens, which was a literal name. Local farmers used the space to collect their cattle once a year. The farmers built enclosures, or cow pens, to corral the animals. Morgan thought it was a good place to make a stand. Only a single, narrow dirt road led into the area. It was bordered on the west by a ravine and on the east by a creek. If Morgan could lure Tarleton down the road and into battle, Tarleton would have no choice but to attack with a direct frontal assault. The night before the fight that would be called the Battle of Cowpens, 
General Daniel Morgan walked through the camp talking to his men, keeping their spirits up, encouraging them, and reassuring them that each man just had to do his small part in Morgan's complex plan. It was a three-phase plan that didn't ask too much of any one man or any one unit. Morgan told them that if each man stayed strong and did his share, he would return home to praise from the old folks and kisses from the girls. It was January 16, 1781, three days before Benedict Arnold finished his campaign against Richmond. It was a cold and damp night in western South Carolina. Few men slept, and new militia units streamed into camp all night long. In the last couple hours before dawn on January 17th, Morgan learned that Tarleton's column was on the move and was approaching just as expected, straight down the narrow dirt road for a frontal assault. Morgan gave the order to rouse the men and form them into battle lines for his plan. For Tarleton, a direct assault came naturally, and he believed he needed to attack immediately. He had received reports that Morgan's column was growing, and it was now close to 2,000 men. That was almost double the size of Tarleton's force. Tarleton needed to attack before Morgan received any more reinforcements. And based on the most recent messages from General Cornwallis, Tarleton believed that the British main army was close enough behind him that it could support him if he attacked. And Tarleton believed he had a key advantage. Morgan might have had the larger force, but most of it was militia. It had been proven conclusively, and most recently at the Battle of Camden, that Patriot militia units would not stand up to a charge from British regular soldiers. So, even though the battlefield was not of Tarleton's choosing, and he only had one option for how to proceed, the frontal assault, he was confident about doing it. He had pushed his men hard to get to this point, and now he threw them into battle before, according to one account, they were fully ready. Roderick McKenzie was a lieutenant in the 71st Regiment, Fraser's Highlanders. He fought in the Battle of Cowpens, and he wrote an account of it a few years later. While Morgan's column camped for the night, Tarleton marched his column until 10 p.m. He gave them four hours of rest, then got them back on their feet. The pursuit recommenced by two o'clock the next morning and was rapidly continued through the marshes and broken grounds till daylight, when the enemy were discovered in the front. Without a delay of a single moment, and in despite of extreme fatigue, the Light Legion and the Fusiliers were ordered to form in line. Around 7 a.m. on January 17, 1781, Tarleton spread most of his units out in a long line of battle and opened fire with his cannon. Behind him, some of his units were still in disarray. Before this order was put into execution, the line, far from complete, was led to the attack by Lieutenant Colonel Tarleton himself. Tarleton led his main units forward, just as Morgan had hoped. Morgan used Tarleton's confidence, experience, and expectations against him. Morgan had set up three lines of battle. The first line, the line closest to the British, was a screen of militia sharpshooters. Most had rifled muskets that were more accurate than the muskets of the average soldier. As the British approached, the militiamen opened fire. 
After the militia's volley, the British fixed bayonets and charged. On cue, the militiamen turned and ran. They gave way on all quarters and were pursued to their continentals. It looked like the first line of militia was retreating in fear, but the retreat was intentional and it was all part of Morgan's plan. As the British surged forward, they ran into the second line of Patriot militiamen. Those were the men whom Morgan had reassured the night before. Morgan wanted them to stand strong for two or three volleys, just fire two or three shots, then fall back. But with the British shouting and charging with bayonets, the second line fired just one volley and then turned and sprinted toward the rear. As they fell back, they exposed the third and final line of American troops. But the retreats of the first two lines were happening faster and more chaotically than Morgan had hoped. The British were now approaching the center of the last American line. Those were the Maryland and Delaware soldiers under the command of Lieutenant Colonel John Eager Howard. On either side were assorted militia units. The line was positioned to maximize the last key advantage of the battleground. The Continental soldiers stood on the top of a small hill. During the British advance, they had been slowly moving uphill, which further exhausted them as they charged. The weakened British force now faced the strongest American force. But because of Morgan's plan, the first two lines of militiamen were temporarily out of the fight. They were reassembling behind the third American line. So even though the third line was full of veteran soldiers, there were only about 350 of them, and they now faced about 800 British soldiers. It would be another act in the drama of the Marylanders versus the Highlanders. Tarleton saw an opportunity to attack the right flank of the 3rd American line. He sent the 1st Battalion of the 71st Regiment of Highlanders forward with a unit of cavalry. As the Highlanders marched into battle, they added the piercing wail of their bagpipes to the cacophony of musket fire, cannon fire, galloping horses, and shouting men. Lieutenant Colonel John Eager Howard saw the movement toward his flank and he ordered one of his units to reposition to defend against the attack. In the confusion, the unit ended up retreating instead of repositioning. When the other units in the American line saw that unit retreat, they thought a general retreat had been ordered, so they started to fall back as well. The American line was moving down the backside of the hill, and the American commander, General Morgan, was furious. The line had barely engaged the British, and now it was retreating. But Howard assured Morgan that his men were not retreating in panic. They were falling back in orderly fashion, which was true. And then Howard gave the order to turn and prepare to fire. He had quickly realized that the accidental retreat could work to their advantage, because the British thought the Americans were genuinely fleeing the battlefield. The zeal of victory overtook the Highlanders and the other British units, and the men charged forward without orders or organization. When the British soldiers were about 30 yards from Howard's men, Howard gave the order to open fire. The volley cut through the British soldiers. Howard screamed at his men to charge, and the Americans surged forward and turned the battle into hand-to-hand -hand combat. 
While the infantry units mauled each other, Morgan's cavalry, led by George Washington's cousin William, rushed forward to engage Tarleton's cavalry. Tarleton ordered his cavalry to charge, and he rode forward with some of his officers. But he quickly discovered that most of his cavalrymen had turned and fled the field. He and his officers were out in front with no support. While Tarleton and his officers battled William Washington's cavalry, American infantrymen closed in and surrounded the British foot soldiers. The battle that had looked like a decisive British victory had reversed itself in nearly an instant. A total rout ensued. 250 horse, which had not been engaged, fled through the woods. The cannon were soon seized by the Americans and the infantry were easily taken. Tarleton and his officers broke free of Washington's cavalry and fled, along with some scattered infantrymen back up the narrow dirt road. A little more than an hour after it began, the Battle of Cowpens was over. It was the first victory for the American regular army in the Southern Theater. The pivotal Battle of Cowpens was dramatized for the Hollywood film The Patriot, starring Mel Gibson. The last battle of the movie, the finale, is a fictionalized version of Cowpens. After the victory at the real Battle of Cowpens, the Americans celebrated. Up north, Congress cheered. Commander-in-Chief George Washington and his main army cheered. Down south, Commander of the Southern Department Nathaniel Greene and his army cheered. Brigadier General Daniel Morgan, whose flying army won the battle, certainly cheered. And he immediately thanked Lieutenant Colonel John Eager Howard of Maryland for leading the maneuvers that won the battle. Howard won recognition from Congress and George Washington, and he was rightly hailed as a hero by his hometown newspaper, the Maryland Gazette. But it took a long time for all of that cheering to happen. News could only travel as fast as a messenger on horseback. So, on the morning of January 17, 1781, no one outside of the battlefield knew about the victory. It would take days and then weeks for the news to spread. And Morgan and his flying army couldn't sit around and pat themselves on the back. The battle had lasted about an hour, from about 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. And by about 12 p.m., Morgan was rushing his army away from Cowpens to reunite with Green and the rest of the American Southern Army. Morgan made provisions for the dead, the wounded, and the prisoners, and then his men started the march. He knew British Commander Cornwallis was in the vicinity with the British Southern Army. Cornwallis wasn't close enough for an imminent strike, but Morgan didn't want to squander his brief advantage. And he was right to be concerned about Cornwallis, because Cornwallis was irate about losing hundreds of light infantrymen, his equivalent of Morgan's flying army, including nearly an entire battalion of Fraser's Highlanders. Five months earlier at the Battle of Camden, the Highlanders had helped rout the Marylanders. Now, the roles were reversed. The Marylanders routed the Highlanders. After the Battle of Cowpens, there were just 244 Highlanders of all ranks who were fit for duty. 2,000 had been recruited in Scotland six years earlier, and through battle casualties and sickness, the attrition was nearly 90%. But the 244 who could still fight 
rejoined Cornwallis's army for the campaign that would be called the Race to the Dan. The Dan River runs through northern North Carolina and then up into southern Virginia. It was considered an informal dividing line between American-controlled territory and British-controlled territory. North of the river was Virginia, a Patriot stronghold despite the recent incursion by Benedict Arnold's British force. South of the river was North Carolina, a place where the Americans had some small footholds, but which was generally regarded as within the sphere of British control. And, of course, the British Army directly controlled all the key places in South Carolina. So, if General Morgan wanted to run north to escape the British Army, he needed to get across the Dan River and into Virginia. And Cornwallis was determined to stop him. But now that Cornwallis had lost his fast-moving light infantry at the Battle of Cowpens, he only had a large, slow-moving army that couldn't possibly keep pace with Morgan's smaller, faster column. After several days of trying, Cornwallis made a fateful decision. He decided to transform his main army into a flying army. He ordered his men to destroy anything that wasn't absolutely needed, and he led by example. The army built giant bonfires, and Cornwallis threw his personal baggage into the flames to show that he was serious. The army spent days burning everything that couldn't be carried or pulled quickly by horses. The tactic worked in the short term. Even though Cornwallis lost days to the process of burning everything and more days to bad weather, his army now moved with considerable speed. He chased Morgan on a diagonal run through North Carolina. But Morgan made it to safety. He and his flying army reunited with General Nathaniel Greene and the main Southern Army, and they crossed the Dan River before Cornwallis could catch them. It was now mid-February 1781, a month after Cowpens, and the American Southern Army was, at least temporarily, out of the reach of the British Army. But the effort required in the race had completely exhausted the American troops, and the feeling was mutual for the British. The American Army rested at Halifax, Virginia, and the British Army camped at Hillsboro, North Carolina. But the recuperation time for both armies was brief. Less than a week after they paused to catch their breath, they were on the move again. The race had provoked equal responses in opposite directions from the locals in North Carolina. Cornwallis had been told that there were masses of North Carolinians who were loyal to the crown. If that was true, fewer tried to join his army than he expected. So Cornwallis was not able to add the local help he had hoped for, and Green was. Local militia units flocked to the American side. In addition, two regiments of Virginia Continental soldiers and the brand-new 2nd Maryland Regiment joined Green's army. When Green felt his army was big enough, he crossed back over the Dan River and went on the offensive against Cornwallis. Detachments from both sides skirmished, and the main armies maneuvered, and they finally met in their only battle near the village of Guilford Courthouse. The village was north of the modern-day city of Greensboro, North Carolina, which was named for American commander Nathaniel Green. 
Green arrived with more than 4,000 men, a combination of Continental soldiers and local militiamen. Cornwallis arrived with less than half that number. The battleground was in the woods, as often happened in the Southern Theater. It was mid-March, when the nights were cold and the afternoons were temperate and mild, some might say perfect. General Cornwallis, though outnumbered, was determined to exact revenge for the British loss at the Battle of Cowpens two months earlier. General Greene was just as determined to prove that the American victory at Cowpens was not a fluke. At the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, March 15, 1781, the Marylanders and the Highlanders fought in the same engagement for the final time. In the woods outside the tiny village, General Greene arrayed the American army in the same type of three-line formation that had worked for General Morgan's flying army at the Battle of Cowpens. The first two lines were militiamen, and the third was the regular Continental soldiers. After an artillery barrage from both sides, the British approached through the woods. The first American line opened fire, but most of the shots went wild. The British were still an intimidating presence for inexperienced militiamen, and the first line quickly retreated. The second line, made up of Virginians, put up stiff resistance. But all the different types of British units, including the Highlanders, were attacking all across the American line, and the line retreated after its brief stand. Now, the British Army advanced on the third and final line of American troops, the Continentals from Virginia and Maryland. There were two Maryland regiments on the field that day. The unit called the 1st Maryland Regiment was a consolidation of the survivors of all the other Maryland units that had fought in the war up to that point. They were the experienced veterans who were sometimes called the Old Maryland Line. The other Maryland unit was the brand new 2nd Maryland Regiment. They were new recruits who were about to experience their first real action. By the time the British units reached the last American line, they had lost cohesion and lots of soldiers. The British units who attacked the 1st Maryland Regiment and some of the Virginians were stopped and driven back. But on the other side of the American line, the British units, including the Highlanders, attacked the new 2nd Maryland Regiment and had more success. The 2nd Maryland faltered, and the British began to turn the American flank. But the 1st Maryland Regiment, the old veterans led by John Eager Howard, pivoted and engaged the new threat. They held up the British advance long enough for Lieutenant Colonel William Washington's cavalrymen to charge into the action. As the horsemen slashed with their swords and fired their pistols, the 1st Maryland charged with bayonets. It was one of many bayonet charges by both sides during the bloody battle. That charge featured Corporal Thomas Kearney, one of the few black soldiers to receive a promotion during the war. He reportedly bayoneted seven British soldiers during the hand-to-hand -hand brawl that was the final stage of the battle. As General Green surveyed the action, he saw it was not working out as well as it had at Cowpens. Most of his troops were performing well, and they weren't getting routed, but they also weren't going to win without sustaining heavy losses. Green decided to withdraw his troops. He agreed with George Washington's philosophy in a case like this. It was better to retreat and live to fight another day. As the forces disengaged, British General Charles Cornwallis felt the same way. 
Technically, he could call the battle a win, but he had suffered a huge number of casualties to an army that was already tired, hungry, and losing men to sickness and desertion by the day. The costly Pyrrhic victory at the Battle of Guilford Courthouse forced Cornwallis to give up on his strategy of a speedy pursuit of the American army to crush it in one big campaign. The fighting would have to continue, and now he would have to decide on a new course of action. Cornwallis had chased the American Southern Army for two months in the hope that he could wipe it out and gain superiority over the region once and for all. But now he was stuck in no man's land in North Carolina, and he had two choices. He could march his exhausted army 130 miles back down to the supply base at Camden, South Carolina, or he could march his exhausted army 150 miles to the supply base at Wilmington on the North Carolina coast. Cornwallis made a fateful decision. He chose Wilmington. If he had gone to Camden, he would have been back in British-controlled territory. He would have been in the heart of a network of supply bases and outposts throughout South Carolina and northern Georgia. But at Wilmington, he was relatively isolated. And, much more importantly for the Americans, he left South Carolina and Georgia vulnerable to attack. The American commander in the South, Nathaniel Green, could not have been happier with Cornwallis's choice. While Cornwallis marched toward Wilmington, Green marched back down to South Carolina and started the campaign to retake territory. In mid-April 1781, one month after the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, the dominoes started falling in South Carolina. One of the cavalry commanders of the American Southern Army, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Lee, took 300 men and united with the Swamp Fox, Francis Marion, and his unit of about 80 men. They laid siege to a small outpost called Fort Watson on a narrow peninsula that jutted out into the Santee River. That area is now a lake called Lake Marion, southeast of Columbia, South Carolina. After eight days of siege, the Americans couldn't dislodge the 115 defenders in the fort, but they didn't want to abandon the effort. So a lieutenant colonel made a creative suggestion. They should build a tower that was taller than the walls of the fort, and then they could pour gunfire down onto the defenders. The Americans chopped down trees, tied the logs together, and constructed a tower more than 30 feet high. At dawn on April 23rd, Maryland Continental soldiers provided cover fire from the ground while sharpshooters climbed up into the tower. From the elevated position, they had unobstructed lines of fire down into the fort, and they blasted the defenders. At the same time, American assaulters rushed forward and started chopping into the log walls of the fort with axes. At that point, the British commander, who had been wounded by the sharpshooters, decided his defense was a lost cause. He accepted the American terms of surrender and gave up Fort Watson. The detachment of Light Horse Harry Lee and Francis Marion performed the first successful mission in the effort to retake South Carolina. Next, it was the main Southern Army's turn, and their target was Camden.
Camden was one of two important supply bases in South Carolina, and the British had fortified the area around the centerpiece of the town, Joseph Kershaw's mansion. Kershaw had elevated the town from an out-of-the-way settlement to a thriving center of commerce. When the British marched in, they turned it into a key supply base, and they used Kershaw's house as headquarters. They built a defensive perimeter around the house and turned the whole area into a military compound. The garrison was commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Francis Lord Rawdon. He had ceded control to the commander of the Southern Department, General Cornwallis, when Cornwallis was in the area to lead the Battle of Camden. But now that Cornwallis was with the main British Southern Army in Wilmington, North Carolina, Rawdon was back in command at Camden. He had about 900 men to defend the base against 1,500 Americans who were approaching from the north. While the American detachment led by Henry Lee and Francis Marion was laying siege to Fort Watson, General Nathaniel Green was scouting the British defenses at Camden. Green sent a unit of Delaware Continentals to check out the British works. They skirmished with British pickets and then reported that the defenses were too strong for an assault. Green backed off of his plan to attack, and he moved his army to a patch of ground called Hobkirk Hill, which is the heart of the modern-day town of Camden. The next day, April 25, 1781, Lieutenant Colonel Rawdon decided to attack the American army. The area of Hobkirk Hill was thick with pine trees, just like the original Camden battleground a few miles north. The American force was larger by about 600 men, and it was packed with Continental soldiers. The 1st Maryland Regiment, the 2nd Maryland Regiment, the 1st and 2nd Virginia Regiments, a Delaware Company, a cavalry unit, and a North Carolina militia unit. But early in the battle, a couple key losses turned the engagement against the Americans. The British attacked the American picket lines, who were established in front of the American main battle line. When General Green saw the initial attack, he ordered a counterattack. But during the counterattack, a captain in the 1st Maryland Regiment was killed. The loss of an important officer caused confusion in the ranks. The regiment's colonel issued an order to withdraw and regroup, but the order never reached Lieutenant Colonel John Eager Howard. The thick pine trees of the battlefield played havoc with visibility and communication. While some of the Maryland companies retreated, Howard's companies continued the counterattack. And then the colonel who commanded the 2nd Maryland Regiment fell with a wound, and that created more confusion. On the other side of the American line, confusion infected the Virginia regiments as well. All coordination was gone, and General Green ordered his entire force to disengage and retreat. The Americans abandoned Hobkirk Hill, and the Second Battle of Camden ended in another American defeat. After the Battle of Hobkirk Hill, a familiar pattern repeated itself. The British won the battle, but then they abandoned the ground they had just fought to control. The main British Southern Army was 150 miles away in Wilmington, and the loss of Fort Watson two days before the battle cut the lines of supply and communication between Camden and Charleston. Lord Rawdon chose to leave Camden. On May 10th, two weeks after the Battle of Hobkirk Hill, 
the British marched out of Camden. It was another moment of déjà vu for the Americans. They had lost the battle, but gained the battleground. Camden was back in American hands after nearly a year of occupation by the British. And then the Americans got on a roll. Two days after the British left Camden, another British supply base fell. The detachment of Henry Lee and Francis Marion moved on from the successful siege of Fort Watson and conducted a successful siege of Fort Mott. The same day Fort Mott surrendered, an outpost at Orangeburg surrendered to South Carolina militia leader Thomas Sumter. Four days after Orangeburg fell, Fort Granby fell. Next, Francis Marion's militia captured the village of Georgetown without a shot fired. After just one month of action, American forces had reclaimed nearly all of the small outposts in South Carolina. And the reclamation project didn't stop at the South Carolina border. In neighboring Georgia, two key cities were under British control, Augusta and Savannah. Savannah was on the coast, and like Charleston, South Carolina, it would have to wait. The Americans couldn't yet coordinate the resources to try to retake a coastal stronghold. But they did have the resources to go after Augusta, which was now isolated after recent American successes. Control of Augusta went back and forth throughout the war. In the beginning, obviously, it was under American colonial control. In January 1779, the British captured it with a detachment led by Lieutenant Colonel Archibald Campbell of the 71st Highlanders. After a few weeks, Campbell decided Augusta couldn't be held. It was too far from the British stronghold of Savannah, and the Americans could too easily interfere with supply lines between the two cities. When Campbell led the British force out of the city in February 1779, the Americans controlled it for a little more than a year. Then, the British captured Charleston and began their conquest of South Carolina. As a part of that mission, they sent a force to Augusta and took back the city. Now, in the late spring of 1781, an American detachment under General Andrew Pickens arrived at Augusta. After a brief fight on the first day, General Pickens, with support from Lieutenant Colonel Henry Lee's cavalry, surrounded the British fort at Augusta and began a siege. Two weeks later, the British troops surrendered. The official surrender happened on June 5, 1781, and it happened on that day instead of the previous day because the Loyalist commander at Augusta didn't want to surrender on King George's birthday, June 4th. So, on June 5th, with the fall of Augusta, the British controlled just three places in South Carolina and Georgia, the coastal cities of Charleston and Savannah, and the backcountry outpost of 96. No one knows for sure how the tiny settlement of 96 received its unique name. The most common story is that the name came into use in the early 1700s because the settlement was 96 miles from the nearest Cherokee village. By June 5, 1781, it was the last British outpost in the South Carolina backcountry. General Nathaniel Green and the main American Southern Army had been laying siege to the town and its fortifications for nearly two weeks, and Green was becoming increasingly frustrated by the stalemate. On June 18th, nearly a month after the siege of 96 began, 
Green ordered an assault on the fort. He had received a report that a British column was on its way to reinforce the garrison, so he decided it was now or never. During the fight, Corporal Thomas Kearney once again displayed his courage under fire. Kearney's company commander, Captain Perry Benson, was seriously wounded during the attack. Kearney hefted his captain onto his shoulders and carried him away from the battlefield. Benson was a big man, and when Kearney laid the captain down in the surgeon's tent, Kearney passed out from exhaustion. The summer heat was so brutal that it alone killed 50 British soldiers that year. Benson and Kearney survived the battle and the war, and they maintained a friendship throughout their lives. And if Kearney had performed his act of heroism today, he would probably be a candidate for the Medal of Honor, the highest award for bravery in the American military. But back on the battlefield, and despite actions like Kearney's, the attack on 96 failed. General Greene pulled his troops back and ended the siege. Like his mentor George Washington, Greene decided to play the long game. 96 was completely isolated in the interior of South Carolina, and the Americans could afford to wait. Greene led the main American Southern Army back to the area around Camden and spent all of July and August resting his men. Ultimately, just as it had at Philadelphia and Camden and other places, the situation resolved itself in the Americans' favor. A British relief column did go to 96, but shortly thereafter, the troops burned and abandoned the outpost and consolidated their power in Charleston. With that, the Americans controlled the entire interior of South Carolina and Georgia. The only British forces in the region were stuck at Charleston and Savannah. The British Army in the South was now almost entirely concentrated in three places along the coast, Savannah, Georgia, Charleston, South Carolina, and Wilmington, North Carolina. And the stage was set for the end game. No one knew it, and for the British it was unimaginable, but in a little more than three months, it would all be over. The war would be done, and a new nation would be born. Next time on Mission History, General Cornwallis debates his options and decides to move his army to Yorktown, Virginia. American commander George Washington and French commander Comte de Rochambeau rush their huge combined army south to trap Cornwallis. One final siege remains in the American Revolutionary War, and then it's all over. The end of the war is next time on Mission History. This series of Mission History is a production of Black Barrel Media, Q-Code, and the Historic Camden Foundation. In this episode, you heard Terry Stewart as Scottish Lieutenant Roderick McKenzie. The series was researched, written, and directed by me, Chris Wimmer. It was produced by myself and Mandy Wimmer. Our executive producers are Kerry Briggs for the Historic Camden Foundation and Steve Wilson and Dave Henning for Q-Code.
Marketing lead for Q-Code was Ellie Kotopish. Original music by Rob Valier. Featured violin by Kevin Huang. Historical advisors were Owen Lurie, historian with the Maryland State Archives, and Jim Pycooch, South Carolina historian and author. Their help was invaluable. Extra special thanks goes to the team at the historic Camden Foundation. Carrie, Stacy, Margaret, Catherine, Will, Lance, Len, Davey, Liz, Barbara, Arthur, and Marley. Thanks for listening.